Welcome back to the show. My next guest is Michelle Goodwin, UCI Chancellor's Professor of Law, Founding Director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy, and serves on the Executive Committee of the American Civil Liberties Union. As a commentator extraordinaire, Michelle brings receipts regarding the Texas abortion ban, Senate Bill 8, that go all the way back to the 1860s, if not centuries prior. Michelle also maintains appointments with the Program in Public Health, Department of Criminology, Law and Society, Department of Gender and Sexuality Studies, and the Center for Psychology and Law. Her most recent book, Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood, as well as other works that her expertise brings from baby markets, money and the new politics of creating families and black markets, the supply and demand of body parts. You can follow her topical commentary in her hosting on the issues in Ms. Magazine, also on so many other media platforms that time does not allow us to cover, but everywhere. And she is everywhere now covering the Texas abortion ban. She comes to us today from her office in Irvine. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Michelle Goodwin. It is a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for inviting me to have this conversation with you. Well, thank you. The pleasure is mine with, I know, so many demands on your time to make this special commentary that we're all really, really earnestly hungry for. We're taping this, folks, early on September 3rd. There's going to be so much more happening by the time this is broadcast. So first, what's the shorthand that you're going to use for this Supreme Court two-step taking. It's, I, I guess maybe that's the kind of the idea behind what the majority on the Supreme Court was trying to do. There, I mean, what's the shorthand for labeling the step that they took this week? Disregard. Okay. And that's the shorthand of it, is that we see a disregard for the lives, the well-being of women in uh, the state of Texas and potentially for the autonomy, privacy, and liberty of women across the country. And let's be clear, we're talking about very learned individuals, very sophisticated individuals who serve on the United States Supreme Court. And it's worth paying attention to that Chief Justice John Roberts who's never identified himself at all as a liberal, he's not, he is a conservative, distanced himself from that majority opinion. And not only is the chief justice a conservative, he's not one who has identified himself within a cohort of being a woman's rights activist, feminist, he's none of those things. And yet this conservative justice who is not necessarily ever identified himself as his jurisprudence is leaning into a reproductive rights, privacy, and autonomy. That's never been it. But yet he can see clearly how to interpret the law. He understands the value of precedent that needs to be upheld, at least in this category. One can see that with his concurring opinion in June Medical v. Rousseau. And he saw what the alarm was by what Texas has done and its attempt to undermine what is a constitutional right, a constitutional right that this Supreme Court has not said should no longer be a constitutional right. 
And by the very means of how the Texas legislature wrote this law and how they have now implemented the law, he saw that as dangerous to a constitutional democracy. And he's right about that. Well, he's conserving the reputation of his his court. That's the conservative well, that's really line. Well, and, and that's important. And that was something that he needed to do, given the charges that the former president, Donald Trump, made against federal judges, claiming that when he uh, was unsuccessful in cases before federal judges, that that had only to do with the whomever the judge was appointed by rather than the lack of merit of the position that he held. And it ultimately pushed the chief justice, and there were lower court judges who pushed him to do this, to clarify that there was no such thing as Trump judges, as Obama judges, as Bush judges, that they're all held to the very high standard of an ethical norm of a professional conduct to be objective, follow the law, and implement the law based on either stare decisis, a review of the merits that come through the district court review and appellate level review, but that these cases are not supposed to turn on partisanship. And it was so important that he say that because sadly, it appears that partisan influence does arise in our courts, and we may or may not talk about it, but I think it's worth noting that during the Trump administration, President Trump was able to nominate more judges for the federal bench than any other president, save George Washington. A number of those judges did not pass the American Bar Association um, nonpartisan review process And many of them were selected from what one could call its own version of a kind of shadow docket, meaning that there were judges that made their way through, but were provided names provided to the president through a rather private process that leaned heavily on one particular group being able to fast track names to the president. And it's worth noting that amongst some of those judges, were individuals who felt uncomfortable even identifying Brown v. Board of Education as being rightfully decided by the Supreme Court. And it's worth noting all of that and some other things too. Right, like a shadow vetting. And then now we have the shadow docket. It's all transacted by an exclusive sort of a group. I know you didn't name Federal Society, but that I'll I'll name them as far as being the kind Mm -hmm. of the pipeline that brings those brought those appointments to the confirmation hearings that passed. Well, that's absolutely right. And that has had during the Trump administration an outsized influence on the judicial nomination and confirmation process. And what makes that alarming, you know, at any given time, there can be groups that seek to have influence with the White House. That in of itself is not unusual, but there are processes that protect that process from being undue 
from pushing the hand of the American democracy in such a way that one specific group would like to happen. But those processes were shut down. And I named the American Bar Association process because it's one that under prior administrations, whether Republican or Democratic, was such a central part of the confirmation hearings. We have, as a nation, relied on learning about the information provided by the American Bar Association that related to uh, the temperament, for example, of the people that were being considered for the bench, their prior history with regard to sitting on the bench or anything else about their ethics, about their professionalism, the things that are actually very important to a democracy because the judiciary is important to a democracy that judges be unbought and unbossed and that they're able to uphold the American Constitution and protect individuals from harms that can be inflicted by government or by other people. And it's important that people who serve on the federal bench or people that never have to leave the federal bench, these are lifetime appointments, that these are people who are of reasonably good character. And so with that process having been upended and other vetting processes being upended, then that is alarming, especially as some of the reports that came through the American Bar Association was that some of these nominees could not pass muster as being local county judges, let alone serving on federal bench. Some of them who had really no understanding of civil procedure and basic fundamental areas of law that we would expect of third-year law students. So it's a mouthful I'm really serving up here, Michelle, but I see a massive collision in our, right in this moment in time, where the shadow vetting, the shadow docket is colliding with critical race theory. This Texas SB8 is going to have enormous uneven impacts and consequences on various demographics in Texas. So how would you respond to that, my setting up that thought? Well, here's what I would do, and I appreciate that, is I would say it's not even critical race theory. Critical race theory is a theory like law and economics, is a theory like feminist jurisprudence, is a theory like legal realism, is a theory we need to understand that these are just facts. So it's just fact that uh, in the state of Texas, people who are more likely to be surveilled, arrested, charged happen to be people of color, even if we weren't talking about matters of abortion and reproductive rights, just the nature in the United States of who are the people that are more likely to be surveilled, more likely to be tracked, more likely to be arrested, more likely to be charged, more likely to receive longer sentences, disproportionate to their demographic in the country, happen to be Black and brown people. And when we add on the specter now within these spaces of the tracking and surveilling that is allowed now through this law. It's incentivized. Yeah. That is incentivized by the bounty that is associated with this law. Then it is based on fact of what we already know of social and legal practice in that state and across the country that very likely may be black and brown women 
who come to attention. And I think it's important to understand something else about what this means. There's been a bevy of scholarship that has been written over time that exposes various levels of this tracking. A lot of it in recent times, we've seen it associated with policing. But in recent years, people have been talking about and using this terminology of the Karen, meaning random individuals in society who pay more attention to Black and brown people, so much so that they engage in, these are the Karens, who engage in calling the police even on children, Black children who are selling water or selling candy bars to raise money for their school or setting up little cute little lemonade stands, right? We've seen the videos of it. and Well, but Michelle, I just I want to say locally, we've seen Karen's busting, calling the cops for a Black child going into the Black child's own home. So it's, it's right well, here, yeah. right now. Exactly. So those are some of the nature, you know, of it calling the police on Black people having legal picnics in parks, right? So, so we've seen that and there's been a lot of memeing and so forth and, and there's been humor derived and, and people have laughed about it. And of course, people who are caught in it, it's horrific. I mean, imagine the, the child, the seven-year-old who's just selling lemonade to raise money for a cause who now is confronted by police or the child who's delivering newspaper, who's now surrounded by police, the child and the mother, right? So, so that's chilling and horrific for them. But here, what's important to understand is that we're not talking about random people alone. We're actually also talking about people who are deeply organized. The anti-abortion movement in the United States has been deeply organized and sadly also deeply violent with histories of violence with present of violence. Now, it's a presence of violence that has become so normalized in our society that traditional news media don't cover it. They should, right? And so what do I mean by that, Claudia? I mean that traditionally, if you, if you show up at any clinic around the country that performs reproductive health care, including abortion for women, you'll find protesters outside. Protesters who sometimes spit on the people who are going in or the, the employees or the people who are seeking to terminate a pregnancy. The people who are shouting at the people who work inside and the people who are looking to go inside to get this constitutionally protected procedure done. There are the incidences of slash tires and things like that. Those are kind of normal day-to-day -day activities that have required these clinics across the country to hire guards to invest in cameras and security, to call upon volunteers to try to help patients come in for their medical screenings, right? That's every day. But what that doesn't also include is the fact that since 1977, there have been nearly 50 bombings of clinics that perform abortion. There have been mass shootings that have taken place from the anti-abortion movement at clinics. There have been doctors and nurses who have been murdered by anti-abortionists. There have been threats. There has been stalking. There has been surveillance. There have been the flashlights that have been flashed in on patients while they are getting care. That is the movement. That is the organization and organizations across the country that are part of a network 
that have done that. That's well documented. The FBI knows this. So when we're talking about the incentives that have now come about through this Texas law, these incentives further encourage the harassment that already exists and empowers it and sadly emboldens a movement that has already had a history that is not, we don't have to call that critical race theory to identify that. In fact, I would reject calling that critical race theory. I would reject it, call, calling it law and economics. It just is what it is. This history that's been well documented, irrefuted, because we know it exists. There are people who have been recorded as saying, yes, I did this, and I would do it again after shooting up a clinic and doing other vile and violent types of things. Let us be clear about the kind of exceptionalism that has been tolerated in the infliction against women. In no other space could we see a society or even Texas tolerate this. Can you imagine if this were tolerated against people who want to purchase guns in Texas? Could you imagine a law enacted in Texas that would allow for and provide a financial incentive of $10,000 or more for anybody who drives someone to a pawn shop or to some antiques show to purchase a gun? No, you couldn't. And could you imagine that in Texas, a blind eye would be turned to an organized movement that specifically targets people who own gun shops and targets them with bombs or threats of bombing and threats of violence against the owners. No, it would not be tolerated. It would be seen as extremist. It would be seen as anti-American. It would be seen as anti-constitutional. It would be seen as antithetical to what is a civil liberty, which is to be able to obtain a weapon. So, Michelle, I've been looking at analogies of what this is to sort of make vivid for people who haven't quite wrapped their minds, haven't worked through what the implications of this ruling are. Shall I help you with that? <laughs> no, I, I have one. I have one. I want, since I, I, I appreciate your calling me on the uh, critical race theory and I will retool my my take on that. But what analogy I want to use is this looks like a Trojan horse in reverse. Mm-hmm. That the the horse is leaving the citadel, and it has all these vigilantes that leap out of the horse, and they go in all different directions with who knows what kind of devices to troll anybody they suspect that has any kind of role at all in aiding and abetting a person trying to seek an abortion after the sixth week? Well, what's interesting is it turns on its head the constitutional jurisprudence itself. So many people refer to Roe v. Wade as the law of the land, and symbolically it is, but we really are under Planned Parenthood v. Casey. That is the law of the land with regard to abortion rights in the United States. And in that case, two conservative judges who were responsible for the opinion there, Justice O'Connor and Justice Kennedy, wrote that there should be no substantial obstacle that stands in the path of a person receiving an abortion. 
and that uh, any substantial obstacle that stands in the way of a person being able to fulfill this constitutional right would be struck down as unconstitutional. In many ways, the state of Texas has actually turned that on its head and has said that actually many people can get in the path, that it is lawful to get in the path of that. And we will incentivize you getting in the path of that uh, by the fact that you can secure a civil victory, a financial victory for actually interfering with this constitutional right. And so that is quite clever. Um, But in the cleverness of it, it also shows us just the distance and gap between where this Supreme Court is and that opinion, because it entirely, entirely undercuts the Supreme Court's jurisprudence in this space is absolutely antithetical to Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Now, what the majority has done in its shadow docket, and what that means is that this is an unsigned opinion, this one pager that comes from the majority of the court, conservative majority, save Chief Justice John Roberts. And what the court said was that we will not rule on the constitutional merits. We will just say that our hands are tied because we can't see that there is any standing to bring this to us at this time, and we see no current threat. Now, this was an opportunity for the majority on the court to basically be able to obfuscate, but it asks, you know, a a really important question, then who are you, Supreme Court? It tests the very knowledge of one of the foundational cases that we teach in constitutional law, Marbury v. Madison. The importance of Marbury v. Madison and the early constitutional jurisprudence was that the Supreme Court established itself as the chief arbiter of the land, as the chief court in the land to be able to intervene in cases and to be able to sort them out. When the Supreme Court says we have no legitimacy in intervening here and sorting anything out, and certainly not in reaching the merits of this case, boy, was this a very clever obfuscation that had basically tied the bow on something that was a long time coming, a very sophisticated, well-oiled and well-paid for line of uh, reasoning and line of engagement by lawyers who have come from the same movement and as many of the people who sit on the court. And what I mean, you know, you've named the Federalist Society and many of the people who have been involved in the processes that we've seen today are tied into a back scene. Um, And so this was like a kind of tie of a bow on a planned on a strategy that has been a long time coming. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Michelle Goodwin, UCI Chancellor's Professor and Founding Director, Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy, and author of the recent book, Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. So when we're talking about this bow, and if the Supreme Court has obfuscated, if the state courts have jurisdiction to address the way in which Texas's Senate Bill 8 has been constructed, we have this, it's a kind of an atomization of justice to some extent. So with this huge debacle in public health, 
let's just quickly go through all the possibilities of where public health is going to break down with the status quo here with SB8. That's a great question. Texas is considered one of the most dangerous or deadly places for a person to be pregnant. That's because in Texas, there are incredibly high maternal mortality rates, infant mortality rates as well. The spike in maternal mortality occurred in the wake of earlier Texas anti-abortion measures that led to the closing of many clinics in the state of Texas. What those closures meant was not only that abortions couldn't be performed, but many of the clinics in Texas that do reproductive health care were performing breast cancer screenings, ovarian cancer screenings, cervical cancer screenings, and doing general kinds of health care that otherwise low-income women couldn't afford or didn't have insurance uh, so that it could be provided in other spaces. In a state that does not have Medicaid. That's exactly right. And so basically, it ripped the rug from underneath basic public health care for low-income women who also then couldn't receive prenatal care. So what Texas now leaves is that people can't have abortions after six weeks, which essentially means no abortions. It means being forced or coerced now by the state to carry pregnancies to term in a state where it's well documented that the potential for death is high, perhaps even higher than virtually any other state in the country, save Louisiana or Mississippi. And that is dangerous. And when we talk about this, Texas's maternal mortality rate is also higher than many countries in the developing world, right? So when we say how dangerous it is, we're not just looking in the United States. It's dangerous when compared to all other what would be considered industrial countries in the world. Texas's maternal mortality rate, we would be looking at what, how does it compare to Bosnia? How does it compare with Saudi Arabia? That's how deadly it is to actually carry pregnancies to term in Texas. And so this is a very dangerous proposition, a public health proposition for the women in Texas. Now, for wealthier women, it will mean that they can travel out of state to places like California, to Illinois, New York, wherever make a weekend of it even, uh, which is something that wealthier women were able to do even pre-Roe in Texas. But for middle-class women, for working-class women, now not only do they need to look over their shoulder generally uh, because people may be watching them for the potential that they might be trying to terminate their pregnancies, and of course doctors will not want to violate the law and perform any abortions after six weeks of pregnancy. But now it affects these other areas, Claudia, as you mentioned, these other areas where clinics may close that were providing additional healthcare services. And in fact, for many of them, that's the majority of the services that they did provide, and yet they may close. So um, I'm also, Michelle, I'm also thinking, though, of the unsafe self procedures that are going to they are going to happen. We know that from when parental notification was first legislated in Indiana, we saw young women having the self abortions. So I want to make sure we also cover that hazard. Yes. Leading up to Roe v. Wade itself. It was clear, well documented people coming home and finding their daughters dead in the tub. 
men coming home and finding their wives dead on the dining room table, kitchen counter. You know, that that was a reality. And the Supreme Court was well aware of that in Roe v. Wade. It was a seven to two opinion. There were five conservatives who were amongst the seven justices that voted to end the criminalization of abortion in the United States. It touched the lives of so many people in many ways because abortions are so safe. In fact, a person is 14 times more likely to die by carrying a pregnancy to term than by terminating it. So abortions have become so safe that unfortunately, these lawmakers have been able to scare people and make them think that abortions are dangerous when pregnancies are far more dangerous in the United States. But sadly, they've been able to kind of work a kind of um, false narrative here. But what you're speaking to is peel back the veneer of that. And what did we see pre-1973 and the fear of seeing that again? Because you are right, abortions will take place. There are people who will not want to be pregnant. There will be people who will not want to, cannot afford to have another child and do not want to be put in a position of having another child that they cannot afford. And that is such a a frightening proposition in terms of a return to pre-1973. One can hope that the specter of death is not seen again, but certainly the history is, is there. So if I can make the sort of final line of questioning here is the remedies. It's not a facile question, but there are some positive right now uh, all over how a legislative or executive branch fixes. Is there something that occurs to you? And while I ask that, I want to know, is plan B still available in Texas? Where does that figure in the uh, abortion medications? Yes, well, they're still legal, but in Texas, now that they've got this victory before the Supreme Court, expect that there will be other legislation that will be pushed through that attacks not only other means of terminating a pregnancy, but also means of terminating what could become a pregnancy. So plan B addresses not pregnancy because a pregnancy only takes place when there is an embryo that embeds in the uterine wall. What plan B does is it interrupts the process before sperm would attach to the ovum and then implant in the uterine wall. So that's not yet a pregnancy. That's just sperm floating around within the uterus. But it's possible that in a place where there are so many conflations that that could be conflated as a pregnancy. We've seen that the Supreme Court's conservative majority has in the past and Burwell v. Hobby Lobby into that which is not medical science and it is not accurate, but one wouldn't be surprised that there could be legislation that would conflate plan B as an abortifacient. But abortion medication though, that that could be, that's sure. part of the, the if that's in the package that the bow may tighten, maybe a slightly larger package of the next bow is tightening around. So that would make abortion medication virtually impossible to get. It would be illegal oh, to get. Oh, absolutely. Oh, that's absolutely. where they're headed. That's, that's the plan. And, you know, look, I think that one of the ways of understanding this is in the following. One way of thinking about this is through the eugenics, the line of the mm-hmm. eugenics movement in the United States. It too was a movement. It too was well-funded. 
it too had great significant political influence and economic influence with politicians, with judges, with industrialists. And it provides a really compelling analog here to the anti-abortion movement. And that movement, and some might say, well, sterilization sounds different than abortion. But keep in mind, all of this is about power and influence over women's bodies. That is what this is really about. And so if you follow that analog, when Virginia developed its model eugenics law, it wanted a test case before the United States Supreme Court, because if the ruling was in the manner that the state of Virginia wanted, then that meant that this model law could legally be enacted in many other states, not just in Virginia, but it could be the law of the land, except in those random states that said, no, we actually support the constitutional right for someone to be able to determine their own reproductive health outcomes. 1927, the United States Supreme Court upheld the Virginia law, much like the United States Supreme Court in its effort to not intervene, upholds essentially this Texas law. And we will see this as the model in many other states. And you will see that Texas will do all that it can to get to its ultimate objective, which is to end reproductive autonomy of women in that state. I know you can say end the reproductive autonomy and it just has, there's so many directions well, no, of hazards saying that about like about women and yes. people who can become pregnant because the state of texas it is not lawmaking about vasectomies yeah i know the, the the guy the, about erectile dysfunction uh medications right it is is no there's nothing on the agenda about viagra cialis vasectomies none of that is on the agenda what is on the agenda in the state of texas have been the types of reproductive health care avenues that have been used traditionally by women. With that unwieldy, though, target, the unwieldy ideological approach to classifying our fellow humans, I mean, that, that whole take on that misogyny directed toward half the population, though. Are there any remedies, though, Michelle, that legislative or executive, that there's yes. a, there's so a deputizing of doctors to protect yes. constitutional advising women, but is that exotic or, I mean, do we keep giving Elie Mastal no. more momentum no. behind his appearances on that? So from a pragmatic point of view, what can happen now is that there is the Women's Health Protection Act, which is drafted by Senator Blumenthal. It now has more support from the House and Senate than it ever has been before. Recently, there was a hearing about it just a couple of months ago. And so that's legislation that codifies Roe v. Wade. That legislation, Nancy Pelosi has said that it will get a hearing uh, before the House and will get a vote. It's possible for that to also go before the Senate as well. So those are all possibilities. And there were members of the House and Senate who saw the potential for this time to come. And so that legislation is actually not new, but and in fact uh, was drafted some time ago, but it may get the hearing that its drafters have long wanted for. And we'll see what that outcome happens to be. But you know, the other thing that can happen is that in other states, action can take place now to further bolster reproductive health care services as well as reproductive health care rights. 
that are fundamentally important because these are not just esoteric matters. When I emphasize, and it is important to emphasize, just as the Supreme Court did in 2016 in Whole Woman's Health v. Hellerstedt, that a person is 14 times more likely to die by carrying a pregnancy to term in the United States than by terminating it, then any interference with a person's ability to terminate a pregnancy means that we are leaving these people to the statistics that are well documented, 14 times more likely to die. How much do we care about life? In the United States, when we leave pregnant people with those kinds of statistics. And so there are things that can take place now to further aid and support the health of people who become pregnant, reproductive health altogether, which I think is really important, and also to protect and preserve the rights of individuals to be able to make the choices that they need during time of pregnancy. That's whether to carry a pregnancy to term or to be able to terminate it. Without the Women's Health Protection Act, which is, it's, it's problematic because we don't have a filibuster-proof Senate, that um, that could be really complicated getting that through there. So I, I know that's a big lift, but without the passage of the Women's Health Protection Act, we're looking right now, or it's existing already, but this would sort of fortify a kind of a Mason-Dixon line of women's health care in this country. Well, in many ways, we already had that, right? So again, if we are historically accurate and we are mindful about that, I know we are in a country that has shown its resistance to history, but we've been in a Mason-Dixon with regard to reproduction, Black women's reproduction was documented it was policed, it was surveilled, it was part of the U.S. economy. We have yet to understand the full power of that. The power, the economic power produced out of that reproductive policing was more valuable to the United States than even the industrialization of railroads. That is how powerful. South Carolina became a world economic power. And it wasn't because there were train industrialists in South Carolina. It wasn't because there were skyscrapers in South Carolina. It wasn't because uh, Wall Street was located in South Carolina. It was because slavery was located in South Carolina. And it was essential to the economies of Mississippi, South Carolina, North Carolina, all of those states, um, slavery. And one of the key and central features of slavery was policing Black women's reproduction and being very exact and very exacting about it. And so much of this, even if people are kind of blind to it or may have been historically unaware, much of this is kind of a playbook from the past, you know, sort of That is as much as eugenics is part of a kind of playbook from the past. And so these histories are now in repeat for. So when you say that there's like this Mason-Dixon line, that was the original Mason-Dixon line. And now clearly there is a Mason-Dixon line, even with the Supreme Court taking up the Dobbs case, which is a case that comes out of Mississippi, where Mississippi has enacted a 15-week abortion ban that makes no exception in cases of rape and incest. So understanding that it's Alabama, it's 
Georgia, it's Louisiana, it's many of the former Confederate states that we see these aggressive anti-abortion measures taking effect. There's a kind of social conditioning that is long before Roe v. Wade that dates back centuries in those places. But I would be remiss if I didn't also point out that it's not those places alone. That's where we see it much more aggressively and where it's harder to fight back locally. But also, you know, one sees that in some of the Midwest states, too, some of this taking effect. Well, and also with the sterilization that occurred in so many areas, including Southern California up until the ninth. That, that's during the ninth and there was a even more UC, recently. There was a UCI OBGYN a faculty member who participated in that at the USC hospital facility in the 70s. So um, no mas bebes, and is, mm-hmm. it's documented very well. So I'm calling out everybody who's been enabling and fully participating in those kinds of eugenic policies. So I can't ask more of your time. I want to say, as we close it, Michelle, has appeared and will continue to appear to, and contribute commentary. The best way to follow her latest appearances is just to follow her on Twitter. She posts them all the time, and I'm glad to, I've been able to hear them, and it's required listening and viewing everybody. Michelle, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us on Ask a Leader today. This has been really helpful. Thank you so much for having me on your show. My guest was Michelle Goodwin, UCI Chancellor's Professor and Founding Director of Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy and author of the recent book, Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. Well, that's my wrap. For next week's show, Laura Bratton and Gabe Dima-Smith We'll talk about building the brand new Black Democratic Club of Orange County. And California Black Caucus Chair Taisha Brown will join them. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. If in my judgment the court veers in the wrong direction when important.